As I think about Mother's Day, I, I couldn't help but think of a, a couple more, more stories about that season when the, the little ones are, are at home. I read a story about a mother using one of those lines maybe some of you have used with your kids, with their little girl. You know, every time you're naughty, I get another gray hair. The little girl looked back at her mom and said, well, mom, you must have been a real terror. Look at grandma. (laughs) I think about a, a conversation between a dad and his son. The dad was trying to explain the day he and the, the boy's mom got married and what a wedding was and all that goes into that. And, and the boy was having a hard time grasping it because he'd never been to a wedding. And he thought about it in his little five-year-old mind, thought about all the things that mom does for the family. And he said, oh, I get it. That was the day mom came to work for us. <laughs> and when you, when you think of all that mothers do, as the glue of a family, you can understand how a little boy might have that misperception. We have much thanksgiving to give to our, our moms and our wives who, who pour so much into the children. But I think about that season with little children, and if you guys who have had them or have them are, are like us, as you enter into that season and they're little, it almost feels like you're going to have these blessings in your house forever. But then one day you wake up and you realize that's just not the case. For us, we're at the front end of that realization. we got a 15-year-old who's likely going to be getting his driving permit later this year. And while we have no reason not to trust him, it's a big world. And it's one thing to say we trust God. It's another thing to say we trust you with our our child as we enter into this season of of letting go. Uh, Some of you are even... Further into that, it's graduation season, and some of you are seeing them graduate either high school or or college and on into the the next phase, trusting God with the unexpected in the lives of your kids, whatever twists and turns life may bring, whatever trials. I think about that, and I think about a young couple I know in town here that I met with this week that, that just recently had a young baby, and and they thought they'd be around here a long time, and both sets of grandparents thought that too. They, they live around here as well, but then the, the husband began studying Hebrew some time ago, just had a heart to understand uh, the Hebrew of God's Old Testament, and, and doing some other readings along those lines. And then one day the wife was at home, and, and the husband came home from work, and she said, I didn't hear an audible voice, but I believe God's putting a burden on my heart to reach the Jews who don't know Jesus as Messiah in Israel. And they began to talk and pray about it. And they believe God is leading them down a path of preparation for that day. And one of the things they asked me is pray for both sets of our parents. Because while they're Christian and they support us and love us, it's going to be an adjustment. It's going to be uh, letting go. And I think about that, the unexpected twists and turns of life, the unexpected trials. And what I think is that the best thing we can do as parents is to lead those children to Jesus. To lead them to Jesus because when they go where we will never go, He will lead them. You know, when they're outside of our reach, 
He will hold them in His hands. Indeed, for all of us, whether we're parents or not, it's in clinging to Jesus that we find strength in the middle of all of life's twists and turns. And I really believe it's in a big biblical vision of who He is that we find strength and encouragement no matter what comes our way. The disciples knew about this need for encouragement. You remember last week, Peter just had his revelation from God about who Jesus is. He said, you're the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And Jesus said, yeah, that was revealed to you by my Father. And then Jesus proceeds to shatter their expectations of what that Messiah was. He says, I must die. I must die. I will suffer and die and rise again. And my followers too must deny themselves, take up their crosses and and follow me. That was a paradigm shift for many Jews. Today we look back and say, well, they had Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. It talks about his suffering and then his victory. But Jewish writings show that many Jews separated the suffering verses in that passage They applied those to the people of Israel and the victory passages were applied to the Messiah. Jesus is now putting them together, suffering and resurrection, saying, I must go through this and you must follow me in that path of suffering in this world. Talk about a paradigm shift. What do you think they were feeling? I think probably some discouragement, some some disappointment. This is not what we thought we were in for. What do they need at this moment? They need encouragement from Jesus. That suffering and death is not all there is to following Him. As as Paul Harvey would say, suffering and death when we follow Jesus is not the rest of the story. Thank you. I know that's an old reference. Some of you remember Paul Paul Harvey. That's, That's not all there is. They needed a glimpse of His power and His glory to encourage them that yes, He is indeed the Messiah. And we will follow Him wherever He leads. So as Jesus takes three of His followers, Peter, James, and John up this mountain this morning, I want us to put ourselves in their shoes and and walk with them. Process the discouragement and the encouragement they're about to receive. Chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now what's that talking about when some of them are going to see the kingdom of God after it has come with power? Some of the people that were with Him that day. Was it the second coming of Jesus? Did He come in that generation? No, we're still waiting for that, right? Some believe it's when the Holy Spirit came down at Acts chapter 2, possibly. And the Gospel began to spread around the Roman Empire, possibly. I believe along with many others that what he's talking about is what we're just about to read. Because right after he says that, Mark gives us this time note. He says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. They're about to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God come with power on this mountain. 
Now, many believe this mountain is Mount Hermon because do you remember where they were when Peter made his declaration that Jesus is Messiah? Anybody? Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon was very close to there. And it says a high mountain. That one goes up over 9,000 feet. If you live in Arizona, you, you may be familiar with the ski resort about that level. The base level at the Snowbowl Ski Resort is about 9,200 feet. Sometimes Mount Hermon was snow-capped. So if that's the mountain, you can, you can put yourself there if you've ever hiked up in Flagstaff. Watch what happened on this mountain. As he was transfigured before them. It's the Greek word we get metamorphosis from. It's not some outward costume-like change. It's, it's from within. It's, it's who he really is coming out. And watch, watch, put yourselves in the disciples' shoes. It says his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And despite all the movies about Jesus, white was not a common color to wear in those days. It, you know, it soiled easily. Not a good work-a-day color. It was an uncommon color, but this was a dazzling white. And we learn from the other Gospels that it wasn't just His clothes. They tell us that His face shone like the sun. It shone like the sun. Luke says it happened as he was praying to the Father that his face was altered. Now, if you want, there's a taste of that. Maybe you've done this before. Walk out of here after service today and just briefly try to look at the sun with your eyes open and imagine. <laughs> yeah, Bill's giving the disclaimer in his laughter. Don't do it. We don't want to be responsible for people being blinded. I've done it. Imagine the face of Jesus <laughs> shining like the sun. And put yourselves in their shoes. They had never seen this before. They'd seen miracles. They'd seen examples of His power. But this is the first time they got a glimpse of His glory like this. On top of it, it says, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Now Luke adds to this. He says, Elijah and Moses appeared in glory and spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now I love that these two guys of all the Old Testament people are talking with Jesus about His departure. Departure there, the Greek word is the word we get exodus from. Jesus is about to lead a new exodus to save God's people. And we only understand the original exodus in light of what He's about to do. But these are two guys that knew something about interesting departures. You remember Moses? God said, you're not going into the promised land because you disobeyed me, but you're going to go up on this mountain and get a glimpse. And then who buried him? Deuteronomy 34. Who buried Moses? God. That's an interesting departure. Elijah. Did he die? No, he, he ascended to, to heaven in a fiery chariot. These guys knew about interesting departures. And, and some believe that they symbolize two sets of believers. Moses symbolizes the hope of believers who die in this world and yet have resurrection hope in Jesus. And Elijah symbolizes those who will be here at the time of the rapture, who will never taste death but be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. But whatever the case, I see Moses here and I... 
I wonder if he's like, oh, so here's the promised land. This is his first time in there. This is, this is great. Right? Who do, what do these guys represent when you think of the Old Testament? What did Moses get from the Lord at Mount Sinai? The law. And so though he was a prophet, the, the common Jew, these three men would associate him with the law. Elijah was one of the premier what? Prophets, right? So them talking with Jesus, many believe, intentionally points out to the guys that what does Jesus say that all the law and the prophets do? They point to Jesus, right? Now, let's go on. I want to point out something that, that Mark doesn't tell us. It says, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Now, I relate to these guys. Like this happened in Gethsemane too. Remember Jesus told them to pray and they kept falling asleep. Same, same guys. I'm at this stage of life where after the kids go to bed, I can't make it through a full round of Jeopardy before I fall asleep on the, the couch most night. When I read about these guys heavy with sleep, I get it. But listen, when they became fully awake... They saw His glory in the two men who stood with Him. Now, I don't know if you've ever been sleeping and then you wake up and something startles you. Like sometimes it's as simple as I'm sleeping and, and I, I, I'm starting to come to and I feel somebody looking at me in the dark and I look over and my four-year-old Luke's there. and Because ah! I didn't know he was going to be there. Something as simple as that. Imagine what these guys are going through as they wake up. They're asleep and then they begin to wake up and Jesus with all this light talking with Moses and Elijah. He's, I dream it. James or John, are you, you seeing this? Imagine what's going through their minds. And, and Peter, verse 5, said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Rabbi means teacher or master. It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he may have been thinking about the kind of tents they built at their Feast of Tabernacles when they remembered their, their journeys in the wilderness. They would make them out of branches. So let, let, let me make one of those for each of you because it's so good to be here. Mark adds the note, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I put myself in Peter's shoes and I hesitate to mock him because I think I, I may have done the same thing. Imagine, Peter. Peter grew up in the same broken, fallen, sin-torn, suffering world that you and I live in, right? And this was the clearest glimpse of God's glory that he had ever had in his life. Of course, of course he doesn't want it to end. Of course he doesn't want it to end. But we go back to the last chapter when he rebuked Jesus for saying he had to die on the cross. Many believe that's part of what's behind what Peter's going through here. Hey, if, we, if they stayed there, Jesus would not descend that mountain, fulfill his ministry and go to the cross, correct? They, they couldn't stay there. They had to return to the valley at that time. It says, a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved 
Son, listen to Him. Clouds. Those Jewish guys would have known about clouds in their history. You think about Mount Sinai, God's presence in a cloud as Moses received the law. You think about a cloud that guided the people through the wilderness. You think about a cloud that filled the tabernacle as God's glory was so intense that Moses could not enter. They knew about clouds representing God's glory. And today in the New Testament, we know that's not the last of the clouds of God's glory. When Jesus ascended, there were clouds, and He said it will return the same way. It's not a weather statement, it's a, it's a glory statement, I believe. This is my beloved Son, listen to Him. You remember what God had told Moses in Deuteronomy 18? One time I'm going to raise up a prophet like you among the people, and to him the people shall listen. I believe this is God saying, guys, this is that one. Listen to Him. Even to what He just told you about the need to go to a cross. To suffer and die and then rise again. Listen to Him. Matthew adds that Peter was still speaking when the bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, listen to Him. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Falling on one's face in the presence of the glory of God was also known to the Jewish people. If you've ever read the vision of God's glory in Ezekiel 1, it's one worth reading. You get to the end of it, Ezekiel 1.28, he writes, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Verse 8 says, Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Elijah, Moses, gone. Jesus only. I think this foreshadows what we read in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Do you get the visual statement they're getting? All those prophets, all the law, it all pointed to Him. He is the culmination. He is the Word of God. God. See, all these pictures of glory, the clouds and the voices and the falling down, they knew that about God. What they are now seeing in front of them is that it's all in Jesus. It's all in Him. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. How many of you know how hard it is to keep a secret? <laughs> somebody tells you something and you just you want to tell somebody. Imagine this one. They get down the mountain, the other guy's like, what, what happened? <laughs> it says they held on to it until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
And they asked him, why did the scribes say that a first Elijah must come? Now many believe they're still wrestling with the death here because they just saw Elijah and Malachi had prophesied the coming of Elijah before the Lord's victorious coming, right? So they're thinking, we just saw Elijah. Why is he still talking about rising from the dead? Why has he got to die? We just saw Elijah. We're good. But Jesus still must follow the path his father has for him. Looking back, we say, guys, why don't you get it? Right? Like we... We know there's a cross and an empty tomb, and then he's going to send the Spirit, but put yourself in their shoes, right? I, I, I picture it kind of like this. Like I was at Fane Park the other day, and I took a picture of something so I could show my boys. It's the remains of a, an old payphone. Like the phone's not in it, but it's just a rectangle box, and it's still got the chain with the little plastic thing where the phone book once was, and... Today, we all know that we carry not only our phone in our pockets, but the whole World Wide Web, and we can video conference people. But you go back 30, 40, 50 years and try to explain that to people, they're going to look at you funny, right? Let's give these guys a little grace. They're on that side of everything that happened. We are so blessed to be able to look back through God's complete Word and, and see how it goes together. But they're saying, what's all this talk about suffering? Elijah's here. And what's Jesus say? Verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Other Gospels tell us he's talking about John the Baptist. He came, he prepared the hearts of the people to repent. He said he did. He goes on to say, how is it written of the Son of Man, Jesus, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He said, yeah, John the Baptist, Elijah was predicted and he came. My suffering was predicted and it will come, just as the Word has said. But I tell you, Elijah has come, John the Baptist, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We, we, we encountered that right here. Herod had him beheaded, right? So what do we do with this today? As we think about what this must have meant to those discouraged disciples trying to process the death and suffering of Jesus. Well, I think there are three things about the glory of Jesus that can encourage followers of Him today. Number one, His glory is absolutely overwhelming. It is absolutely overpowering. And you say, yeah, but... That was before the cross and the resurrection. Surely if these guys saw him in his risen glory after all that, they, things would be more casual. No. One of these men, John, wrote the book we know as Revelation. Long after this, I want you to listen to what happened. Revelation 1.12, he writes, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and His voice was like the roar of many waters. In His right hand He held seven stars. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And His face was shining like the sun in full strength. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. This was the same John on the mountain, the same John who later 
leaned on Jesus at the Last Supper, but when he saw him in his risen glory, he fell down on his face again. I want to ask us, do we have that kind of a view of the vision of Jesus' glory? Or have we watered him down? Have we brought Jesus down to our own level? Created Him in a more comfortable fashion? In our own image? Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. You have a big view of the glory of Jesus. That's important that we have that because for those of us who follow Him, that big view of His power and His glory, it's not only overwhelming, it's also very reassuring. Because you know what happened in verse 17 of Revelation 1, after John fell down as though dead, that same mighty glorious Lord, as He laid His right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, we need a big view of the glorious, powerful Jesus. Because when we have that, and we realize that's the same one as a believer, who He reaches down to and says, I am not against you. I am for you. That's the kind of Lord and Savior that will give us confidence in the face of all of life's unexpected twists and turns. A little watered down Jesus is not going to offer you much comfort. You need a big glorious Jesus. When you understand that, it's reassuring. It reassured Peter. We know that from his letter, Second Peter, that he wrote to the early church. He, he looked back on what he saw on this mountain in the face of growing persecution that would eventually lead to his own execution. 2 Peter 1, he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. We saw His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. When was that? On this Mount of Transfiguration. That's why he says, for we were with him on the holy mountain. That reassured him. Something else reassuring for the believer. I think about what Peter wanted. He wanted to build tents so that he could stay in that moment of glory. Okay, what, what he wanted and would later come to realize as the Spirit came after the risen Lord. You know what the truth is today? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a tent of the glory of Jesus Christ. He dwells within you. Listen to how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4.6. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are jars of clay that hold the glory of Christ everywhere we go. 
Paul goes on later in that chapter, what about when we go through trials that bring us to the end of ourselves? 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul says, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. When we come to those moments of trial and suffering, that's when the power of the risen Lord shines through. Us jars of clay. And last but not least, it's reassuring because that same word metamorpho, metamorphosis that's used of Jesus' transfiguration, you know Paul uses it of us? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, I want to be careful here. Because when I say reassuring, I do not mean that in a way that makes us passive in this world. That's not how I mean it, nor is that how the Scriptures intend that reassurance to be. It is not spiritual marijuana. I want to be clear here. I'm going to share a story. I'm not speaking about medical marijuana use. That's a separate topic. What I'm going to speak about is the passivity that I've seen in several instances that recreational marijuana use brings to the life of our young people. I once sat down with a man in his early 20s who lived with his parents. So much potential, so much talent from God. And as we sat at Buffalo Wild Wings, he confessed to me that his days were filled with laying on his bed smoking marijuana in a high stupor staring at his ceiling. And I talked with him. I said, you, you claim a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? He said, yes. I said, you know what Paul says in Ephesians 5? He says, we, we're only to be filled with the Spirit. Not to be drunk on wine or anything else that, that controls our lives. Only the Spirit. And I said, plus, you're 21. You're created in God's image and He puts you here to make a difference on this earth for His kingdom. And you're spending every day in this totally passive mode, high in your room. To his credit, he heard God's call on his life that day, took all of his marijuana and paraphernalia out to a shooting range and blew it up. <laughs> that, that was the end of it for him. This reassurance from Jesus is not spiritual marijuana to, to make us passive. That's kind of how Karl Marx associated with communism thought of religion. You may remember his quote, Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world and the soul of soulless conditions. Religion is the opium of the people. Now Wikipedia, as authoritative as it is, because it's always correct, has determined to... Uh, give us the meaning of what Karl Marx was getting at. Here's how they interpreted it. Marx was making a structural functionalist argument about religion, and particularly about organized religion. Marx believed that religion had certain practical functions in society that were similar to the function of opium in a sick or injured person. It reduced people's immediate suffering and provided them with pleasant illusions. 
I'm going to offer a kindly rebuttal to Wikipedia and Mr. Marks this morning. Number one, true religion, that is biblical faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, does not decrease suffering in this world. It is likely to increase it. Those who follow Jesus are those who take up their crosses and follow Him. He said, they hated me, they will hate you also. One more rebuttal to Mr. Marx. Far from creating illusions, following Jesus Christ in faith frees us from illusions. One illusion it frees us from is that government is my God. Because that throne is already taken by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It also frees us from the illusion that this life is all there is and I am going to live my best life now because biblical truth tells me that my best life is yet to come in eternity in glory with Christ. And that even as I follow Him faithfully in suffering through this fallen world, one day I will share glory with Him that will make the trials of this life pale in comparison. It does not make us passive. It frees us from those illusions. Is that not what Paul prayed for in Ephesians? Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you might know His hope, His inheritance, His power in your life, that your eyes would be opened. That's what Paul prayed for. It's overwhelming. It is reassuring. It is compelling. It drives us into kingdom life, abundant life for Jesus and the gospel. Is that not what happened to Saul? He saw the same bright light. You remember it as he shared his testimony. Acts 26.13 At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. And being a good religious Jewish man, he knew about God's glory. What really rocked Paul's world that day was when he asked the question, Who are you, Lord? And the answer was, I am Jesus. That's what rocked him. All of a sudden, God's glory and Jesus came together in his life and he realized he had it all backwards. Did he become passive? No, he traveled the Roman Empire at great cost of life and limb to share the gospel of Jesus Christ around that empire. I think about this young man. He went to the Bible College, Moody Bible Institute, where Carolyn and I spent time. This is their monthly magazine. This is a young man named Caleb. He was there in their music department. God put a group of people in Africa on his heart. These are herd boys who spend their time in the, the hills shepherding. Started with an interest in shepherding in his heart, and then God, God brought them there. And I, I read a story in here how he's got 31 stories uh, stories of Jesus from the Bible that he shares with these shepherds as they're out in the fields. And one, one story that grabbed me, there was one young shepherd who had a, a goat that fell and, and broke his leg and, and couldn't get up. It was non-responsive at first. And Caleb had just shared the story of Jesus 
healing the paralytic man lowered through the roof. So the shepherd said, would you pray for my goat? And Caleb prayed for the goat, and within four days the goat got up and was walking around again. Several months later, as Caleb was on different journeys, he heard that this young man proclaimed Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and he went and found him. He said, when did you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior? He said, the day he healed my crippled goat. He found the vision of God's glory compelling. It may not always be Africa. That's what everybody assumed about everybody at Moody. Like my boss, I worked for some architects while I was there. and He always asked me, when are you going to end up in Ghana? <laughs> and some do. Some do. Sometimes it's Prescott Valley. But the question for you today as a believer is, where is he compelling you to go? And the truth is, the statement about making disciples says, as you go make disciples. That is wherever you find yourself today, whatever people you find around you, that's where Christ's glory ought to compel you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why you are here. As we close, I want to revisit where we began. Excuse me. We started talking about letting go of the the children in our lives and those we love. And so I hear the Father talking about His Son whom He loves, with whom He is well pleased. I think about the fact that we have a Heavenly Father who knows what it is, not just to let go, but to send His Son for our salvation to a cross. A Father who knew that it would end in ascension, glory, and exaltation. And I think that that same Father is in control of our lives today and the lives of our children as we trust them into His care. He still works all things together according to the purpose of His will. And I want to close with a motherly prayer from Ruth Bell Graham. She said, Had I been Joseph's mother, I'd have prayed protection from his brothers. God keep him safe. He's so young, so different from the others. Mercifully, she never knew there would be slavery in prison too. Had I been Moses' mother, I'd have wept to keep my little son, praying she might forget the babe drawn from the water of the Nile. Had I not kept him for her, nursing him the while, was he not mine and she but Pharaoh's daughter? Had I been Daniel's mother, I should have pled, Give victory, this Babylonian horde, godless and cruel. Don't let them take him captive. Better dead. Almighty Lord, had I been Mary, oh, had I been she, I would have cried as never mother cried, anything, oh God, anything but crucified. With such prayers importunate, my finite wisdom would assail infinite wisdom. God, how fortunate infinite wisdom should prevail. Father, I thank you for this awe-inspiring picture of our Savior. Thank you for the, the glimpse of His overwhelming glory they got on that mountaintop and they would later understand more fully after Your resurrection and ascension. Forgive us for the ways we have watered down Jesus to, to make Him just like us. Father, help us to regain a picture of His power and glory. We need that picture if we are to be faithful in this fallen world.
Lord, I pray reassurance upon all of Your children in the face of that glory because of the grace. That glorious one is also the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world and through whom we have bold access into Your presence. One who says, rise, fear not. I'm for you, not against you. Reassure your children. Lord, and compel us. Help us not to live the equivalent of a life on spiritual marijuana. Compel us actively into the work you have for us. Open our eyes. Help us to follow you. That abundant life. For you and the gospel. Lord, even as we take our offering today, I pray it would be from hearts surrendered, thankful hearts, grateful hearts, trusting hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.